I'm glad you're here. I want to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 45. As we move now into this last week of the series that we've been doing over the last, uh, this is the fifth week, uh, called But God Meant It for Good. As we've uh, done sort of a brief examination of the life of Joseph and gleaned from it principles and truths uh, about God during our suffering. And someone asked me this week, how am I? And I said, honestly, I'm weary. And they said, well, why are you weary? I said, I've been preaching on suffering for four weeks, three times each Sunday. And I'm just, it's tiresome. Uh, But I hope that as we've uh, examined Joseph's life and seen his trial and his difficulty, hopefully more clearly, we've seen God's faithfulness and God's character on full display as he uses Joseph uh, in uh, accomplishing his plan and showing his, his character to him. Uh, because during this season or during this series, we as a church family have not only been examining trial and difficulty, we have experienced it. Uh, just in the le- weeks leading up to this series and as we've moved through these weeks uh, as a church family, we've suffered uh, with grief. We've dealt with grief. We've dealt with loss. Uh, We've dealt with life-altering illness. Uh, We've not only known about these things from the truth of Scripture, we've known about them experientially. And and I pray that as we've moved through these weeks and focused more on who God is rather than on who we are, uh, that God has made Himself very clear to you in your own circumstances. And in this text that we're going to examine this morning, Joseph reiterates three predominant and prevalent truths and principles in this text that we've seen throughout the the series. Earlier this week, I brought the outline to to several of our pastors and I wanted them to look at it. And I said, uh, this feels a little redundant to me from what we've looked at in the weeks prior. And their response was, okay. And I thought, well, I wanted a little bit more. And it's not that it's redundancy for the sake of redundancy, but there, there are three particular themes or, or threads that are just so prevalent in this text, it would do us well to come back and revisit these one more time as we move to the end now of this text. And what we're not going to do this morning is try to cover from the place we left off in chapter 42 all the way to the ch- end of chapter 50. We can't do that in in one time together, so we're not going to try. So you've got some homework to do to read the rest of the narrative on your own and and to continue to take notes and see these places where God's character and his, his, uh, His nature is on display. What we're going to do is come to chapter 45 and see this engagement that Joseph has with his brothers following about three chapters worth of uh, Joseph, and I can't find a better word to describe it, Joseph tricking his brothers. Because the famine has uh, moved into Joseph's homeland and Joseph's father sends his brothers to Egypt to buy food and they get to Egypt to buy food and they have to buy it from Joseph and they don't recognize him but he recognizes them and then he just messes with them for three chapters. Sends them back in hither and yon and puts stuff in their bag and keeps one in jail and sends their... I mean, it's, it's pretty engaging so I encourage you to go read those things. But 
We're going to come to chapter 45 this, this morning, and this is the place in the narrative where, where Joseph just can't take it anymore, and he has to reveal his true identity to his brothers. And so what I want us to do this morning is to see these three predominant truths and characteristics of God that are on display that we can more easily see in the midst of our trial and suffering when we view this world and our own life from an eternal perspective as Joseph does in this text. And so look at uh, Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to read the first 15 verses, then we'll go back and walk through them as we prepare to come to the Lord's table at the end of our service today. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. If you're looking for an understatement in the entirety of this narrative, there it is. They were dismayed at his presence. There's a lot of weight in that word dismayed, and and, and Hebrew is a very descriptive language. And you, you know that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you know that you're caught and, and everything's coming to light and it's, it's just all right here. That's what that word is talking about. They were dismayed when they realized who he was. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, there's not a pause there, but if there were one, it would almost be as if that pit of your stomach there had a basement. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, as if they would have forgotten. And if there's ever a moment in this narrative where Joseph could have had a gotcha kind of place, it's here, but there is no whisper of that in this text. There's no... Uh, implication or inclination of that in this text. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all of his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all of my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. 
Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. We're going to press pause in the text there, but I do encourage you in the weeks coming to go ahead and read through these last several chapters of the text and see all that God does in in and through Joseph's life. But again, this morning I want us to see three characteristics about how an eternal perspective shifts our focus from this text in Genesis. And the first thing that we can see is an eternal perspective allows us to see God's purposes. An eternal perspective allows us to see God's purposes. If you look in verse 5, when Joseph has revealed his true identity and they are dismayed, he says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. There's word of purpose there that to or for the purpose of preserving life, God had purpose in what he did in and through Joseph's life with the parallel truths of the brother's evil deeds and God's purposes. Notice what Joseph does not do. Joseph isn't dismissive, but he realizes and recognizes what they did was evil. And he recognizes that they recognize what they did was evil. Because in their dismay, he says, don't be grieved. Don't be grieved that you did this thing. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here for purpose word. For God sent me before you to preserve life. This is a wonderfully frustrating dual truth of the presence of evil deeds and the reality of God's purposes. Parallel truths that everything in us wants these truths to intersect. And all of it makes sense. Evil deeds happen. God's purposes will be revealed, or God's purposes will be accomplished. Eternal perspective allows us to see that. When we focus on deeds that happen to us through the grid or through the lens of those experiences and our feelings about them, it it shapes how we interpret those things, how we deal with those things. But when we stop and think this question, what is God doing in this? It changes the way that we engage the things that happen to us in life, in our own trial and suffering. Remember We talked about the purposes of trial back in week one, that not all trial is punitive or disciplinary, but it is all purposeful. That when we encounter trial in our life, that very often we either intentionally or unintentionally drift into this thinking that if I'm dealing with difficulty or I'm dealing with suffering, I must have done something really awful for God to want to get me this way. It's not always the case. There are times in life when suffering comes because God is bringing discipline to one of his people. That's true. But it's not the only reason that suffering comes. Sometimes we suffer because we live in a fallen world where it's imperfect. Sometimes we suffer because we make sinful choices that create environments or create consequences for us that bring suffering. And sometimes we suffer because of the evil deeds of others. And that's the case here. 
Parallel truths. Evil deeds, God's purpose. Simultaneously occurring. And that frustrates us at times when we view them here. But if we'll do this, God's purposes as the overarching umbrella under which these things exist, it changes the way that we approach it. That God could very well, even in through our own suffering, be accomplishing his purposes. And when we have an eternal perspective, when we're looking at it from the picture of not why is this happening to me, but rather what is God doing in and through me in this suffering, it changes the way that we engage the, the things that happen to us in our own lives. And Joseph continually, through the entirety of this text, puts this on display. And here he, he reiterates that. He sums this up with this statement, and he's going to repeat it. Don't be angry with yourselves. You, because you saw me here, God sent me before you to preserve life. An eternal perspective allows us to see God's purposes. The second thing that we can see is that having an eternal, per, having an eternal perspective allows us to see God's faithfulness. Allows us to see God's faithfulness. We've seen this over and over and over again through Joseph's life, through this entire series. And here he says it again if you look in verse 7. We'll look in, in 6, we'll lead up to 7. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me here before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. God expressing and showing, displaying his faithfulness, not only to his servant, Joseph, but also to, his servant, to Joseph's family. But ultimately, and we talked about this a couple different times, God is not only showing his faithfulness to Joseph or to his family, but by doing so here, he's preserving a remnant in the earth and by bringing salvation to them through a great deliverance, he's ultimately faithfully keeping his word that he made to Abraham way back in the first part of the book of Genesis that he will bring from him many nations and the many nations will produce the Messiah. So God... God's faithfulness on display on numerous levels here. First of all, continually being faithful to Joseph, now expressing that faithfulness to Joseph's family, and ultimately faithful to his own word because God is only obligated by his own word. God only has to do what he said he will do, and when he obligates himself, he does so by the perfection of his own character. What God said he will do, he will do. The faithfulness of God does not change. The faithfulness of God that is on display in Genesis chapter 45 is the same faithful God that is on display in our lives now. So when we're in the midst of trial, we sometimes may wonder, well, where is God? God is here. God is active. God is engaged. He has not abandoned us because he said, I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. God is faithful. So God's purposes are on display, God's faithfulness is on display, and when we have an eternal perspective, we're not only able to see purpose and faithfulness, but we also understand that all these things exist under God's sovereignty. Having an eternal perspective allows us to see God's sovereignty. In verse 8, Now therefore it was not you who sent me, but God. 
He says it three times in four verses. And in this last verse, of verse 8, he uses this very particular word of action. You sold me here, but God sent me here. It wasn't you that sent me, God sent me. It's a word of causation. Now this is what we always ask. Well, why in the world... If God is sovereign, did he not choose a different way to move uh, Joseph to Egypt to save the people? Here's the most frustrating part of all this. I don't have any idea. I don't know why God chose to do it this way, except that throughout this entire thing, God's character is on display. Through this entire narrative, God's faithfulness is on display, even in the midst of the trial. God's ultimately fulfilling his purpose and displaying his faithfulness to his his servant, to his people, and to his promise through this incredible provision that he's going to bring. But I don't have any idea why God didn't do it a different way. But you know, the reality of that is it's not my responsibility to know why God didn't do it a different way. What I know, God, is that he did it this way. And in doing so, he displayed his character, his faithfulness, his goodness, his presence. His sovereign hand. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. It's intent. It's not that it's just God allowed it. God moved him there. God sent him there. God's sovereignty on full display. And we've seen that through this text. The Lord was with Joseph and caused all that he did to prosper. Sovereignty. God worked in Joseph's life and put him in Potiphar's house and caused not only all that Joseph did to to, to prosper, but the whole house prospered because of Joseph. God did these things. God is sovereign. Now, what this doesn't teach us is that God is purposefully causing every action of suffering that we engage because sometimes we... Suffer from different causes. We remember we talked about that. But none of those things happen outside of his sovereign hand. And if we have a very worldly perspective about suffering, then that changes the way that then we would view God. Because if we view our suffering through our feelings, then we will ultimately view God through our sufferings and through our feelings. And here's the reality is that our feelings will lie to us. Did you know that? Our feelings will sometimes not give us the clear picture of truth. One of the greatest uh, illustrations of this is in the game of golf. There's a phrase called feel isn't real. Anybody ever heard that? Nobody? Outstanding. Well, let me encourage you. Feel isn't real. And here's the illustration. Because you can, you can put a ball on a tee and, and swing at the ball and the ball go who knows where. And then you might say, but that felt so good. And you might even tell a teacher that that felt like I was doing all the right things because you told me to do this and I did that and it feels like I did that. And and the, the teacher might say, well, what makes you feel like that's true? Because had you done those things, the ball wouldn't be in the woods now. So let's try it again, and you, and you put it on the t- and you hit it again, and it goes who knows where, and they say, how did that feel? They said, it felt the same, because well, it looked the same, and it's still wrong. And so they take a video of your swing, and you think, okay, it feels great, and then you see it on video and think, there's no part of that that should feel right. Because feel isn't real. Feelings will lie to us. 
Because they were never intended to discern truth. Feelings are real in that we have them. When we're wronged, it may hurt. But that hurt doesn't begin to, and it's not supposed to function, into shaping how we view the realities around us and who God is. Because we might think something like this. Well, then if I hurt and God is good, my hurting has to outweigh God's goodness. So therefore, God's not good, and that's not true. So how does the reality of trial and suffering and even the discomfort that it might bring us, how does it fit under God's sovereignty? And so if God is good and God is faithful and God is sovereign and God is purposeful and God is faithful and God is loving, kind and and, and merciful and gracious and all these things, then how then does my suffering fit under that? And And it makes me want to ask the question, then what is God doing in and through this trial to make me more like Jesus? Or what is God doing to display his faithfulness to me? So the eternal perspective allows us to see his purpose, his faithfulness, his sovereignty. And I want us to move to these last two verses of the text this morning to see two very practical relational applications of this text. That Verse 14 says, Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. And after, afterward, his brothers talked with him. When we put ourselves and, and view our suffering from an eternal perspective, particularly when we've been wronged, an eternal perspective helps us to be able to forgive. There's no whisper of revenge in this text. Only Joseph pointing to the purposes of God. Now, he does recognize he's been wronged. Don't don't grieve or be angry that you sold me into slavery. You sold me into slavery. But God. We can live in the reality that we've been wronged, but God's purposes are bigger. There's no whisper of revenge in this text. The word forgiveness is not present in this text either, but the portrait of forgiveness that is painted through Joseph's action is on clear display. Recognition of God's purposes. Because here's the reality. He could have recognized God's purpose and still not be relationally restored to his brother's. He could have said, God sent me here to preserve a remnant. And that's all you'll get. The fact that I'm not killing you, that's all you get. He didn't say, he said, you'll live in this particular part of the land. And I will provide for you. So that your flocks and your children and your children's children would not be impoverished. So that you wouldn't be dealing with hardship. Having eternal perspective enables him to forgive and that forgiving enables relationships to be restored. 
You see it through his hand of not only deliverance of God's purpose, but also in in an extravagance of provision. And if you look in the very last phrase of the description that is given when Joseph reveals his identity and they have this time and he weeps on Benjamin's neck and Benjamin weeps and they weep and he kisses his brothers and that's that picture of, of receptivity. In the very last phrase, and it said, and after this, his brothers talked with him. Remember way back in Genesis chapter 37, Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other brothers. His brothers hated him for it. And there's this little phrase that they could not speak with him on friendly terms. And here, years later, in the purposes of God and in God's faithfulness and under God's sovereignty, Because Joseph has this picture of what God has been doing to preserve this remnant. He not only brings forgiveness, but there's also a restoration of relationship. And then as the text moves on, and this is where we started. In chapter 50, after Joseph's father dies, the brothers get a little nervous and say, Now remember... Uh, dad told you to take care of us and we don't know whether that actually happened or not but that's what the brothers said and and so we end with where we began that Joseph said you meant it for evil but God meant it for good trial suffering in the purposes of God in his faithfulness and under his sovereignty that ultimately leads to the provision of the Messiah that brings us forgiveness and restoration of relationship to the Father, which is what we celebrate this morning as we come to the Lord's table. And so I want to invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. As we prepare to celebrate communion together, we've got some folks who are going to be helping us do that, and David is going to lead us through that time. But I want to invite you to bow your heads and to close your eyes, and just think for a few minutes as we move into this time of celebrating communion together that maybe you've been in a season of trial and suffering during this series. Or maybe you're not in the, in the immediacy of it, but it's very close to your heart. And maybe haven't been looking at things from an eternal perspective. What I don't want you to hear right now is a word of criticism. When we hurt, it's real. When we've been wounded by others, that's a, that's a real and difficult wound to deal with. And I don't want you to be dismissive of that this morning. I want you to bring that to the table. And maybe you've not been looking from an eternal perspective, but this morning you'd like to, and just bring that to the Lord. And you can say, Lord, I'd like to, but I've not yet. Or maybe you're in the midst of difficulty right now and you just need some comfort. 
that is available through Jesus. And you just want to sit with Him. There have been many times recently my prayer has been, Lord, can I just sit with you for a while? I don't have words. But to just sit. Maybe there's some things in your own heart that you need to deal with before the Lord, before we share in communion together. Now would be a time to do that as well.